Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to the Performing Arts Channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Renee Garris, and today I am delighted to introduce you to Dr. Victoria Phillips and her book, Martha Graham's Cold War, The Dance of American Diplomacy. Dr. Phillips, thank you and welcome to our podcast. Renee, thank you so much. Yes. Would you like to begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes, um, it's a fascinating thing for me because um, I did not want to let anyone know what my background was when I was writing this book um, in terms of the publishing world and the academic world. I wanted to be known as a historian um, and not a dancer writing history. But indeed, my interest was piqued by my fascination um, with Martha Graham. Um, I had studied modern dance in New York City as a small child. This will date me, but it was the 1960s, so every good liberal child took modern dance at the 92nd Street Y if they lived in New York City. And um, I wasn't very good, and I was quite fat. So um, I was removed from those classes by my mother, a historian, and put in 17th and 18th century French courtroom dance classes. And I learned to read the notation and found a love for dance and started performing professionally at the age of 10. Um, I did a very mean and apparently precise minuet. Um, I got the performing bug and um, did some theater in high school, continued to perform dance, and went to see Martha Graham's company in 1976 and saw Diversion of Angels, which is the work that I discuss, which is about love. Um, A woman in red, passion, yellow, joy, white, the purity of love. And Martha Graham came out on stage and I said, I want to do that. And was immediately drawn to her. And because I went to a very progressive school um, in those days, um, when I didn't have to show up unless I wanted to. And I decided I wanted to show up at Martha Graham School and began studying every morning um, at the Graham School. Uh, made it into the professional level company class um, by 1978 and danced at the school, uh, learned the repertory, but never was accepted into the company when I left at the age of 20. Um, I wanted nothing to do with Martha Graham after that, frankly, but she came my way. Martha Martha grabs hold of you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then what inspired you to actually write this book? What inspired me was the Library of Congress archives opening. Um, I, by hook or by crook, um, I had um, started in the PhD program in history at Columbia University. Um, After dancing with the with with 
offshoots of the Graham Company and concluding my performing career, I went to college at Columbia, followed by a, a master's in business administration. I went to Wall Street, deciding that poverty was the one thing I didn't want anymore, um, and um, then got married, uh, quit Wall Street as the hedge fund manager to raise children, and got interested in dance history um, for various reasons and took one class at Barnard with Lynn Garofola. Um, I was hooked. Um, Lynn is a most amazing teacher. And I saw how intricate the understanding of dance could be in historical context. Of course, I have the background with Louis XIV and the Minuet um, and Martha Graham, but I knew I did not know what went in between Louis XIV and the Minuet and Martha Graham's diversion of angels. So I set out to learn with Lynn and um, entered uh, the PhD program at Columbia to do dance history. And I became particularly interested in the interwar period. And because of my upbringing in a largely socialist progressive school, I was very interested in the interwar dancers and their communist leanings um, and the dances that they made. I wrote my master's on that. The Martha Graham archives were closed um, and um, embroiled in legal battles as things are with Martha Graham. Always a bunch of drama surrounding that woman. Um, And um, I had written a thank you note to the Librarian of Congress um, saying, you know, thank you for letting me use your archives. Not the, I'm sorry, the, uh, archi- the dance archivist at the Library of Congress um, and said, you know, thank you for letting me use your archive. And um, she wrote back to me, no one has ever written me a thank you note before. And I'd like you to be the first person into the Graham archives now that I've opened them. Um, after they had been sealed. And I I don't want to write about Martha Graham. I want to write about the communists. But what an invitation. So I hopped in the train and went to Washington. And I had remembered Martha Graham saying, my work is not political. And um, that was known. My work is not political. She also said she wasn't a modern dancer. All right. Um, She was always contemporary. Um, so I looked in her scrapbooks, just leafing through, and there I saw a letter in 1936 from Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister for the Nazis, inviting her to perform at the Berlin Olympics with a very eloquent letter, um, back from Graham talking about her feelings about the Nazi regime. Well, all right, that's political, but it was a statement. She had many Jewish members. So then I kept flipping and I saw a note from George Kennan, the father of Cold War containment theory, um, asking her to um, the embassy in Yugoslavia. Well, that sounded pretty political. A letter from Eleanor Dulles, the sister of the Secretary of State and um, director of the CIA under Eisenhower, thanking Graham for her lovely performance in Berlin. Well, that sounded pretty political. Reports from the United States Information Agency on how Martha Graham had done on tours. So there began the quest. Um, What I knew about Graham from my experience um, and what she had said in my presence was distinctly different from 
what was in the archives. Absolutely. And that that actually gives our listeners a a taste of what's in the book and and how your book begins. Um, Without giving too much away, could you just uh, give us a brief description, uh, a little bit more of uh, what you talk about in the book? So the story began um, with the Eisenhower administration um, and um, uh, Graham's first official State Department tour in 1955-56. And as it turned out, um, once I kept digging and digging and digging, was that Graham performed either at the White House um, or was received at the White House and sent on tour for every single president, Roosevelt through George W. Bush, Bush the first, every single one of them, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, from Kennedy to Ronald Reagan, Graham performed for them both. Um, And so this became a magnificent story of her relationship with the White House between 1937 um, and 1989. And um, so the book is organized and each chapter basically speaks about a president. Um, and her relationship um, with the president um, and her company's uh, various um, jaunts across the globe. The only country, um, the only countries that Graham um, did not visit um, were African nations um, and um, some Latin American nations. But um, she traveled all throughout Europe, um, planned um, Russia and Moscow, which were canceled, Soviet bloc nations, um, the Middle East. Uh, she was, I, I did a map, and she was truly a global cold warrior. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned earlier that Martha Graham said she wasn't political. Did you find that to be true as you went through your research? Well, of course, we have to define what we mean by political. Um, And um, I'm afraid I take a very um, logical stance to that, which is, were there letters with the White House? (laughs) And yes, indeed, there were. Um, So that I can trace to every, every government. Um, every every administration. Um, there were also relationships with the first ladies. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, she had a very close relationship with Jackie Kennedy Onassis, um, who not only was first lady during her 1962 tour, but also um, was um, a huge supporter of Graham's galas and became the editor of Graham's autobiography at Doubleday. So there was a very long, decades-long relationship with her. Um, uh, Betty Ford, um, there's an entire chapter on Graham's relationship with Betty Ford that goes into her alcoholism, um, and Barbara Bush, among others. Um, so, you know, is so th- there's, there was not only a relationship with the administration officially, but there was also, there was a relationship with both wings of the White House in many cases. Um, then we launch into how is she political? Um, and in that sense, her belief in the fundamental underlying kind of mantras, I would say, of, of America, um, you know, as, as hokey as this sounds, was she believed in freedom. 
She believed in freedom of expression, freedom of the artists, and she believed in the democratic process, in democracy. She believed in equality. Um, she believed in almost in, in universal human rights. Um, and in that sense, she was very happy to promote these values as a part of a political process in which the United States sold itself abroad. Yes. Do you, do you think she felt used in that sense? Because there seems to be, as you, as you read through the book, there seems to be what she says and then what she does. And I don't know, just as her researcher, do you, you said she was happy. Do you think she felt used by administrations in a negative sense or? I think that she was clever as a cat. Um, and she was used, but also used. Um, Martha Graham had a great saying, which was, um, I'm a thief, but I only steal from the best, which I love. Um, so, um, there is no doubt in my mind after looking through the financial records of certainly the Graham company, um, certainly American Ballet Theater, certainly Alvin Ailey, um, and probably some other companies, those companies would not be alive today were it not for State Department funding and these government tours during the Cold War. Um, it was They were called rescue missions in which the National Endowment for the Arts would fund companies domestically in order to prepare them for international tours that were needed and wanted by government agencies, as we now call it soft power, we can call it propaganda, but companies that represented the United States and American values. Um, so from a financial sense, these tours were absolute, they were bread and butter. They were absolutely necessary. Um, so she was used and she used, um, she kept her company alive. Um, she kept her company in the news. Um, she kept it relevant. And, um, you know, for example, she went to um, Egypt and Israel right after the Camp David Accords. Um, there was a large gala around the King Tut exhibit and she fed right into the Egypt mania and Studio 54 kind of heyday in, in New York City. So she kept herself relevant with kind of Betty Ford at her side <laughs> for much of that. Mm -hmm. And Nureyev and Barishnikov um, and Madonna. So um, I think it was a push me, pull you. The one administration that she claimed she never worked for was the Nixon administration. Um, and she had a deep suspicion of Nixon and Agnew, um, Vice President Agnew, and said that um, in a letter to Ford that, that Nixon was, you know, that, that was the one White House that she didn't work for. Well, there was a tour planned while Nixon was president. Um, it just happened that the tour, that the company left on tour while Ford was president. Um, but there is no chance that a multi-week tour could have been planned in the few weeks that elapsed between Nixon's resignation and Ford's installation in office. And the, the through line becomes Kissinger. 
So um, she really was working for the State Department and Henry Kissinger, um, who was the through line between uh, Nixon and Ford. So, you know, in that sense, she could mold things um, to meet her own political agenda. Um, but she did not. She did not respect Nixon and did not want her photograph to be taken with him. She refused the Medal of Freedom under his administration very wisely. Absolutely. She she is so, such a complicated figure. And she did keep current. I mean, she danced for so long in her life. And um, I, I it was one of the the bits of the book that I really enjoyed was for most of us who were dancers, we're done by our mid-20s. You're lucky if you teach into your 30s or perhaps later. And yet she remained so active. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, since she did remain current and really relevant, what do you think she would make of today's dancers and our young readers and this push now for... Um, a social consciousness, and how that would relate to some of her earlier work, like the pictures of her in Japanese kimono. Would she have found the 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 push pull of that? What, what do you think she would have done? It's predictive, I know, but what do you think she would have done? Well, you know, just to um, come back to your first point of her, um, you know, very very long career. I think it's vital to look at her birth date. Um, uh, of the you know late um, uh, in like 1894, um, and the fact that when she went on her first tour with Eisenhower, it was 1955. So if we do, and she was playing the Bride on the Frontier. So if we do the math, that's extraordinary. Um, you know, how, dancers are retired what by maybe 40. Um, and here she was just launching into this long relationship with the State Department. Her first tour was in 1955 with her as the bride. So the longevity of her career and her power as a dancer um, were just incredible. And it speaks to charisma and um, the necessary um, part of these tours um, with her as an ambassador, explaining her technique um, at cocktail parties at dinners. I mean, she was quite adept socially as well, which made her very valuable. And that was because she was mature. Um, so, um, you know, this this aspect is, is really important. And of course, she lapses into a terrible alcoholic stupor um, after she retires. And she, you know, life as she knows it, um, it she feels as though it's ended. Um, so, you know, I think that's that's very important for us as dancers um, to to remember because there is such um, a, a, a premise of the beauty of youth. Um, and I think she held that and had multiple facelifts and tried to stay young um, and in the end took over the position of matriarch um, very beautifully. But she built this young company of dancers who were spectacular split leaps, um, you know, 180 degree tilts. They were very technically um, very balletic. Um, the heaviness of the early days changed. In terms of remaining politically relevant, um, I think we have to go back to her early years um, and um, her years uh, 
went up with these strange flirtations with the Communist Party that got written out of her FBI file in the Cold War with in the right. wake of McCarthyism. Um, but, you know, she performed at benefits for the Spanish Civil War to support the communist Lincoln Brigade. So they were American communists who believed in democracy and thus formed the Lincoln Brigade to fight in the Spanish Civil War. I mean, that's putting it over, that's oversimplifying it. But what's interesting is that the work she decided to perform to support the communists was a work called Frontier, which was about the freedom offered by the American frontier. Um, so as a political statement there, she was saying, I believe in freedom. I believe in democracy. I believe in America. And therefore, I believe in the democratic process that elected the communists in Spain. Um, that got a lot of people into trouble um, in the Cold War. It didn't get her into trouble. Um, so, And then she also did a work called Steps in the Street, which the company still performs. Um, it was restaged by Yuriko. We don't know exactly what it looked like. And it is, uh, it's it's the Graham Company's revelations, um, the work by Alvin Ailey that always gets everyone on their feet. Steps in the Street is a protest work um, and extremely vibrant. Um, and I think um, she did not like agitprop. So if you abstracted um, the idea of protest and socially relevant protest works, she was on board. Um, some of the more communistic, socialistic works that were more that were edged with pantomime um, were not. She did not respect those. Um, so uh, a work called Folksay was choreographed by Sophie Maslow, and it has people dressed up in farmer suits, and it was all about the Dust Bowl and the and in the Depression. And um, Graham was doing Appalachian Spring and the abstracted idea of the frontier. And there was at one point the State Department wanted to put these two works together and put them on tour um, to talk about America. And Graham's response was, um, oh, Sophie, she's so agricultural. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Which I think is great. <laughs> so, you know, she wanted to tell the story of the frontier, but she was not about to put people in overalls and tell the story of agriculture. That's right. That's a really great point that you just made. Um, I, I found it really interesting in, in your book, in the introduction, you talked about how she required her dancers when traveling, the, the women to remain in skirts and hose, even on really long flights, which was certainly um, in the 50s and 60s, what was 
uh, de rigueur for women traveling, whether it was military or you know you were expected to always be dressed, rather than how we often go comfortably today when we're making transpacific or transatlantic flights. But she really did set the standard not only for dancers um, within the studio and within the stage, but also in their personal lives. She required um, dancers to to adhere to a policy. Um, but what did you find about that? It's, it, I mean, they're, they're, it's so interesting. I mean, this is a whole nother book. Um, so Graham always required ladies um, to have gloves, um, skirts, um, hose, heels, um, when they appeared in public on tours. And Peggy Lyman, who was on tours in the 70s and 80s, she remembers at one point going into a hotel elevator wearing blue jeans, just the elevator. The door opened and Martha looked into the elevator, looked at her blue jeans, entered the elevator, turned around and didn't speak a word. And Peggy thought, no, I'm wearing blue jeans. We're not allowed to wear blue jeans. This is in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, this was a part of Graham's presentation of her work, was that it was highly refined, highly sophisticated. The dancers were expected to behave like diplomats. They were at um, at state dinners. They were at embassy dinners. They knew which forks and knives. They knew how to behave. Sometimes they stole toilet paper, particularly in the communist country. <laughs> but that's another thing. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, sure. Uh, um, but you know, they were really expected to be behave like 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 many diplomats. And the State Department appreciated Graham's. Um, absolute control over her dancers um, and called her company a mini United Nations um, because she had dancers from Japan, from the Philippines, um, African-Americans, Caribbean-Americans, um, Jewish women, Catholic women. I mean, you know, and, um, you know, Graham was the first major dance company to bring African-Americans into her company with Matt Tierney and Mary Hinkson in 1951. And, you know, these kinds of political statements that she made were not made because she said, oh, this is a good idea to have African-Americans and we're coming into this terrible problem of race in the United States. No, she took Jewish dancers in the interwar when there were quotas um, where in the United States, Jewish dancers were not allowed to dance in some companies. Then she took Yuriko out of an internment camp. Then she took Mary and Matt into the company and stopped touring the South. Um, so she did all of those things because she believed in those dancers. They ha all had something that they expressed that she could use in her works um, to further a human drama, not a drama about Jewish people, not a drama about Japanese people, not a drama about African-American people, but a drama about the core things like grief, humanity, love, jealousy. Um, so you had moments where Pearl Lang, Jewish woman, um, Ethel Winter, a Protestant kind of Mayflower 
um, woman, Mary Hinkson, um, descended from um, a slave owner and his slave, they all played Clytemnest. Well, no, Mary and, and um, Pearl did, but they all played leading roles. Um, Pearl and Mary both played Clytemnestra, as did Graham. So it was this idea that these dancers could capture an essence. Well, this also was very convenient for the State Department in the Cold War when the Soviets were saying it's a racist nation. Um, and Graham could show up with this multicultural company and they were all Americans and behaved like ambassadors. So this was huge and a big selling point um, for the Graham company. Um, and um, so, but the other thing that she... and. And we look at this, and so they were very properly dressed into the 70s and 80s, yet when they got on stage, they had bare feet, which of course would be very problematic in some of the Asian nations. Graham knew to turn the bare feet slightly away from facing the audience so it wouldn't be an insult. Um, Leotards and tights, the bared body, and what does she do? She tells stories of sex, (laughs) right? Mm-hmm. Oedipus yes. and his mother having sex on a Noguchi rock. It's pretty graphic. And that's in the 50s. So there's this really interesting balance that she maintains. It's not, it's the, you know, the body movement, the contraction is based on the orgasm, right? Um, Ethel Winter taught it as a laugh. Other people taught it as, as a cry, but it is, you know, it's a pelvic movement that that originates every limb every fingers movement in the gram technique it's the orgasm and she was known to tell women to leave class and not come back until they had had an orgasm so she right right so you know she was pretty upfront about the origins of the technique but not on tour you know on tour it was about humanity and the common bond. We all breathe. We breathe in, we breathe out. Um, Yet her technique was not breathy, (laughs) right? Right. Very kind of deep. Um, So so she framed these things very differently um, and used them um, in, in a quite brilliant way. She was so intuitive when when you talk about the the multicultural multiracial issues uh, or issues the the people that were in her company, and she really did go for human emotion, and I find it an interesting juxtaposition that she never wanted to consider herself a feminist, and yet she embodied a lot of feminist ideals, such as um, the expression of the orgasm. And so what did you find that contradiction as you were doing the research that she may say she wasn't a feminist, but in reality she was, or is that just how it appears to us as readers? I think this is a very interesting question, and it's one that historians have argued over. So um, there are so you know, first we have to define what feminism is, of course, and, and what we what we think it is. And then we have to go back and look and see what did Martha Graham think it was and what did she think she was saying with that statement. And 
what I found very interesting about this statement is many powerful women um, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s made the same declaration. So Georgia O'Keeffe, the modernist artist, said, I am not a feminist. Um, Eleanor Duller, who was, you know, had her PhD in economics from Harvard in 1927 and was in the State Department, um, uh, you know, working, got to Berlin before her brother was named Secretary of State. You know, very powerful women artistically, politically made this declaration. I am not a feminist. Um, So we, I, I think that is something that needs to be studied further. Um, so what Graham, I think what she was going for, she said, I'm not a liberationist. I always get men to do what I want them to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, there was this idea that, you know, I, A, it was, you know, I don't need other women to get what I want. Um there was a, almost a lone wolfness about it. I think the other thing that was problematic for Graham is it goes along with this idea of I'm not political. And if we look at the, um, you know, that period in the 60s and 70s, early 80s, um, when, or, you know, really the, you know, through the 70s, you know, when women were standing up and trying to get the ERA passed, even within the women's movement, you know, do we include lesbians in this? Who is included? Who is excluded? What is the role of African Americans? You know, Bella Abzug versus Gloria Steinem and the politics of these groups. Um, And so, you know, I don't, Graham was not a joiner in that sense. And to be framed by a movement would not have helped her cause in terms of her stance that she believed in the underlying fundamental values, freedom of expression, um, you know, equal rights. Um, So she believed in these. However, she wasn't a joiner for very clear reasons. Betty Ford, who was close to Graham, got involved with the ERA and was politically slammed for making telephone calls to congresswomen, while, congressmen while she was first lady. This was not, Graham was not making phone calls. Um, she was performing Clytemnestra. She was placing women, she was pl- placing Jocasta at the center of the story of Oedipus to make her point. And, and I think that's a really good point because in, I think, uh, in my view, she was a feminist without having to declare it, which I, I think is what it comes down to. Yes, she didn't have to join, but she could make her statement through her dancers. So um, that's just how I see it. So um, what, when you were doing the research, what was the biggest surprise that came to you during your time in her papers in the archives? Wow. Well, in, as a as a historian, the biggest surprise for me was when um, I couldn't find documents in the United States about a project that had been initiated by the United States. And when I went to Berlin, the U.S. documents were in the were in the German government files. And when I went back to Washington, the State Department archivist 
at the National Archives in Washington said, that's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) There are wonderful moments like that. So that was the the chapter on 1957 and her first performance in Berlin. Um, And I had a very similar thing happen with the Jimmy Carter Goodwill Tour because there are no government documents that I could find that really talk about this tour the way they tons of files and folders on both the Eisenhower and the Nixon tours. There was nothing on the the Jimmy Carter Goodwill tour what surfaced because one of the dancers said, oh yes, and then we went on the Jimmy Carter Goodwill tour in an oral history. Wait, what? Um, That exploring that took me to the Metropolitan Museum archives. It took me to Israel. It took me to Amman, Jordan. It took me to Lebanon. I was in Beirut. I mean, I circled this thing left and right um, and ended up piecing something together. Um, It all started at the Metropolitan Museum and the opening of the Temple of Dendur in the Sackler Wing, which, of course, is politically very interesting right now. Um, Yes. when I was at the Metropolitan Museum, I said, oh, I'm looking for this performance of, of frescoes that took place in the Temple of Dendur. And the archivist said that never happened. And I was like, no, I have a picture of it. And one of the dancer's mother, we think, somebody had taken a picture of her standing in the Temple of Dendur. And I emailed her and she immediately sent me that picture. I showed it to the archivist and he said, let's go to work. And it turned out that Graham had said no press on this one. So it had been a rape from the Metropolitan Museum history. So there are these. That is fascinating. Yeah. So like, so literally with dancers, we made history, right? So I got the frescoes program from the Graham people, paying them and their archives in order to put it into the Metropolitan Museum archives so people could see it for free. Um, The dancer gave me her clippings, um, oral histories went in there. So now when you go to the Metropolitan Museum, you know that that took place, whereas before there was no record of it. Um, It was only in people's memories. And of course, these people are in their 70s. So that was really interesting. Um, I think the most difficult finding for me um, personally had to do with her alcoholism and um, the shocking power of uh, that alcohol had over her. Um, and I'm oh, I made a conscious decision to only speak about that in the book, write about it when it directly impacted the State Department tours and her performance on the tours or her ability to get a tour. Um, And I was very careful about that so it didn't become a sensational story. Um, But there are documents in archives that some people say they just don't wanna see um, about her near-death experiences, um, the way in which she almost drank herself to death um, and, you know, all alcohol, you know, alcoholics all have the same horrendous stories of near death experiences. Um, and she beat it. And to me, that is amazing and a testament to her personal 
willpower and power of mind and and humanity. Um, and I believe helped Betty Ford out of it as well. Um, but some of those stories um, are pretty graphic and quite touching. Yes, I. Mm, it is. Uh, it, on the one hand, it does give hope for those who are having issues with mental health or substance abuse. On the other hand, you're right. You don't want to sensationalize something that is a very small part, important, but small part of her life when there's so much more that she contributed to the world. So I, I agree that that would have been a, a tough call for me. Um, I think you handled it beautifully. Um, so that sort of leads me to one of my last questions. What part or what is the biggest part of Martha Graham's legacy that is left? What, what do you find most compelling? What I find most compelling about this part of Graham's legacy is the power of culture in diplomatic settings. And I think this has been forgotten by our government. And it's very easy to point the finger at the dismantling of the State Department by our former president. However, the process started really under Clinton. Um, why? Because the Cold War ended and there was a general sense of triumphalism. We won. We don't need prop. We don't need to do this anymore. You know, everyone appreciates free the ideas of freedom. You know, Congress was never very anxious to fund these things anyway. Um, and, you know, we're the one country, uh, major country, without a cultural ministry. And I think that's very sad. And it's a huge oversight um, in terms of the, the of America's power um, and its sustainability um, as a respected part of a global world order, whether it is leading or not. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the French and the British um, and the Germans have done beautifully is to support their culture and export it. And the Chinese, of course. So um, I think, I think that, that I hope that this helps to bring an idea that cultural diplomacy works <laughs> back to our State Department. Um, in terms of personally, Martha Graham, to me, it's her trailblazing. You know, it's what she did in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. Um, you know, she took no prisoners when it came to invention. And I, th I think that's just brilliant. Absolutely. And um, I, I love when I see videos of her techniques still being taught. Um, there was a video a few years ago going around um, part of her technique being taught. I believe it was in a nursing home type facility with wheelchair bound older patients. And yet there was still this upper body movement. Um, so many of her disciples have evolved and continue to teach her, her philosophy and her dance techniques um, to everyone. And I, I think that's also uh, an incredibly important part of her legacy. Um, not everyone can be uh, an ABT ballerina um, or New York City ballerina, but there's something for everyone with, with Martha Graham's dance. Yeah, um, so I'd like to ask you, yes, please. Yeah, I just was going to say that, that that's a really important point that you just made. Um, she said, um, 
it takes me 10 years to make a dancer. In other words, anyone can be a dancer. And this was a very important part of the State Department and her um, approach to dance. Um, so you didn't have the single white, perfectly aligned white body, everyone doing the same thing at the same time. I have a slide with the Soviet corps de ballet um, in Swan Lake. Everyone's perfect, the same height, right? Um, and Graham versus Graham's core in, um, in, in the story of Oedipus and Jocasta, um, which is women of different colors, different shapes, and moving like fury and bringing that same passion to the stage. So um, I think it's very, very important. Now, you know, in later years, you know, we call it the Amazon years, you know, there was a body type that Graham wanted. Um, but um, I think her instinctual belief in the power of any body to dance was on target. Absolutely. And I, the, as you said, the, the Amazon type, the, the tall type, I was thinking for a moment about some of the Alvin Ailey dancers um, that you can see some of the, the films from the 80s and 90s. And they're these beautiful, tall, statuesque, but they are every color of the rainbow, every hue, beautiful hair. Um, she really left us a lot of legacies, um, more so than just than just dance. There's a, a lot more that that goes with her. Yeah. Um, so I know you are a Cold War historian in, in your background and your research. Do you have any new projects, any new books in the works? Um, I do. I'm very excited about um, a new project, um, which is um, comes out of the uh, Martha Graham's Cold War. And it is the chapter on 1957 that I spoke about um, with the... Um, Finding the German, the American archives in Germany, um, and um, I'm working on the story of Eleanor Lansing Dulles, um, who was called the mother of Berlin. She was um, worked there between um, 1952 to three and 1959, and she writes in her autobiography that she took an invisible position purposely to get things done. And this woman was a powerhouse. Um, she was um, at the signing of the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. John Maynard Keynes, the economist, wrote her a letter about her dissertation at Harvard in 1927 on the French franc. She was a cultural cold warrior. She dealt with kidnappings and building tunnels under divided cities and ringing freedom bells as people were rioting against the against the Kremlin, as she said. Um, so it's it's a she's a fabulous fabulous character um, who I've grown enamored with um, and have been um, since the book uh, since writing that chapter. Um, the other project, you know, going back to this terrible problem of, of addiction, the other project that I'm trying to figure out how to work on is the story of Martha Graham and Betty Ford. Um, Betty Ford, although she's known for the Betty Ford clinics um, and alcohol rehabilitation, um, she says in her memoir that um, she was really um, mostly addicted to pills. And 
given what's happening with the opioid crisis in the United States, um, I think this is a very important message. She was encouraged to frame herself as an alcoholic because that was more understandable in that period. Um, more people, you know, could could self-identify as alcoholics and drug addict had that whole kind of um, class-based um, problem, heroin um, addiction and ideas that this went with the ghetto. Um, and of course, that's changed deeply with the intervention of the Sackler family um, into our culture. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I think I would, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the Betty Ford archives. Graham and, and Ford were, were linked that way. Um, the problem is, is that the letters that Ford received and much of that correspondence is, um, will never be opened because it's so personal in nature. Um, so how to do that, I'm not sure, but it is a story, Betty Ford is a story that needs to be retold. I absolutely agree. There are, there are actually, there are a lot of women from the 70s that their stories need to be told in a 2020 light. Um, it, there's much inspiration to be garnered from, from women who, not to say that they've been forgotten, but have been sort of relegated either behind their husbands or behind stereotypes that we get to discard today. So, um, yes. yeah. well, Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Renee. Um, I really appreciate it. And it's been great speaking to you. And just um, please let people know that they can always reach me. Um, my um, website is www.victoria/phillips.global. And through the website, um, they can email, contact me, um, see um, future books and other past publications. Uh, and I love to interact with people. Um, recently during the pandemic, a mother needed a birthday gift for her um, daughter who loves Martha Graham. And we did a Zoom call for her birthday and a signed copy of the book. So I'm always open to new ideas. That's amazing. And I can say thank you. Thank you for all the dancers, the young dancers and all the, the listeners. I mean, this this book really doesn't need to just be in performing arts. It also needs to be in the diplomacy channels as well as Cold War history. Um, So I hope you get a a lot of good readers. Yes. So thank you, listeners, and um, we'll see you next time. 